With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. This is Jenny Allen, and you are listening to the Made for This podcast. Year, it is our joy to partner with Compassion. And in the last year, over 200 kids have been sponsored because of you guys. And we want to keep that going. And so we believe in this work. We believe in the story of Compassion. Today, you're going to get to hear Richmond Wondera's story. And I promise you this, you will never be the same. It is so powerful. So let's go. Before we even begin, Pastor, I would love for you to share what you do now in a really brief, you know, just explain to everybody. Because I think when you hear the story you're about to hear, to think of how it ends before you even hear it will just cause you to have more awe as you listen. So, Pastor, tell everybody what you do right now. Hi, everyone. My name is Richmond Wondera. I am in Uganda. And I'm the president of Pastors Discipleship Network, a ministry that's making a difference in the whole of Africa. We exist as a ministry for one purpose, to bring training to the African pastor in order to deepen the church and advance the gospel through healthy churches. At the moment, Pastors Discipleship Network, the ministry that I founded, is in three countries, South Sudan, Uganda, and Congo. And we are serving over 6,000 pastors, which means 6,000 churches. The average number of people in each church is about 120, meaning over 750,000 people are being impacted by our work. And we are so honored to see all the stories of transformation, churches becoming more healthy, pastors' homes becoming more healthy, the gospel advancing with speed, but with depth and strength. And so it's been an absolute joy to see God work and to just look back at my story and see where it all started is a marvel to myself, my family, and everyone who gets to hear this story. So let's go into that story. The best place to start with is with the major turn that took place in my life when I was eight years old. So I was only a kid. Uh, I had five siblings and I also had a mother who... Um, was never educated, but she knew to stay home to take care of us while my father went out to work. Um, And so I was only eight years old when after going to school one morning, I returned to find lots and lots of people at home. Um, And there was crying and there was sobbing. And I just knew instantly there's bad news. And um, when I came close to the front door is when I saw it. I saw that my father had been murdered Mm. in the presence of my mom. As an eight-year-old, I looked around. I was so confused. I was so scared. And um, long story short, we laid my father to rest. But that just ushered in a whole new life and a whole new world for us. Mm. It wasn't long before that that we were asked to leave the home that we lived in, which we were renting, 
uh, the landlord literally kicked us out, saying you can't afford to stay here anymore. And um, my mom, who wasn't educated, again, there was no fallback position for her in our government. Uh, there's no care, there's no plan, there is no uh, application that she can make for any kind of support. And so there we were, kicked out of our home, and we ended up going to a slum called Naguru. Now, I must say that was like the longest walk of my life because Naguru had a reputation. So many children were not in school. So many people were dying. So many uh, mothers were dying giving birth. Uh, just the reputation, the sheer smell going into Naguru was, was the worst possible thing that would cross a person's mind knowing that that's going to be home. And uh, I remember us carrying a few items that we had and we were going to Naguru. It was probably about a two and a half mile walk from our previous community. And when I arrived at Naguru, uh, I saw this house. It's a one roomed house, a 12 by 12. And my mother looked at us and said, welcome home. This is going to be your new home. And I remember walking into this house and looking up and I saw that the old iron sheets that covered the house had all these perforations from nails that could not hold any longer and they'd been blown off and you could see some sun rays beaming through. And I, and I wondered what happened when it rained. I was soon to find out because the rains came. And I remember this one night when it started raining around 1 a.m. in the morning. And we thought it was this ordinary storm where you hear all these cracks. And uh, if you can imagine living in a slum where most roofs are tin roofs that are old, and these are houses, small little houses, just all bunched together, just one little house after another. And uh, with many of these nails not holding, whenever the wind comes and the storm comes, there's all this sound of bending uh, iron, bending metal and bending sheets of metal. It was just crazy. But for us, that was no ordinary night because the wind was so strong this particular night that the central iron sheet of our house was blown off by the strong torrent. Wow. And I cannot describe the amount of water that filled our home that night. Our little house became like one giant bucket. We couldn't run out, we couldn't stay in, and we just stood there quiet looking at each other, just praying for this rain to stop. And I recall just being there and just all the dignity that I once felt or had just washed from me. And just when we thought it couldn't get any worse, a few days later, my mother, she said to us, there is no more money for food. That single statement sent us to the street. And what became as visits to the street became a lifestyle. And there we are. We wake up in the morning. We're not in school anymore because in Uganda, it's private education. So what does a kid who doesn't go to school do from the time they wake up? What does a kid who does not have what to eat at home do when they wake up? That's, that became the questions of my day. And I began to wake up and just go to the street. And I used to walk with my little sister, Doreen, who was six at the time. While my brother, Richard and Ronald, used to go one direction. Raphael and, and, and Sharon used to go another direction, trying to increase the chances of picking up stuff. And um, 
I remember going to the street and some days were fun days because, uh, I mean, we could climb trees and, you know, get papaya or mangoes or whatever. And we could find some things like that that were fun. But some days were really hard days, especially those days when we got up late and other kids had gone ahead of us. I recall this particular day when I literally run after a moving lorry that was bringing bananas from the countryside to the main market called Nakawa. I was so hungry that afternoon and I was, my sister Doreen, it was been such a bad day. We were starving. We hadn't had food the previous night and now it is morning. It's coming to lunchtime, still nothing in our belly. Life was just so painful. And so when I saw this truck, I didn't care which car was coming from the left or right. I just jumped, run right into the middle of the road and began running behind this truck. And I remember when it slowed down at the junction, I was able to jump and pull myself on the back of this truck and pluck bananas and literally jump off and then came back to my sister. And I remember giving her bananas to eat. And I remember her eyes, her big eyes, when she uh, saw me coming back with bananas, like, Richmond, where did you get those? I said, look, don't worry about it, just eat. And I sat next to her. And I was literally taking care of my sister when I was only eight years old and my sister was six. But I remember sitting with her as she ate away and uh, feeling not just forgotten, but invisible. Because there's a lots of people that kept walking by the street and none of them, none stopped to ask, you know, who are you? Where are you from? Have you had anything to eat? None. Like, like you know, you would, you would ask your own kid if they were sitting somewhere just by themselves looking hungry. And nobody did that. And I remember just feeling so lost. And I wondered what would happen to us. But in the middle of this desperation, my mother realized if nothing changes, she would lose us one by one because the death of kids was a common story in our village. And so she was not well health-wise, but she picked up herself. And that's why my mother is like my hero. She picked up herself and said, look, I'm going to find help. And so she goes to one of her friends. Her friends points her towards the local church and says, that Baptist church, Nakawa Baptist Church, has a compassion project. And this project sponsors kids. It doesn't matter whether they're Christian or not, because we were not Christians at the time. We had never gone to church. My mother uh, never went to church. My father didn't believe in God. And so uh, when the woman said compassion sponsors kids, whether they're Christians or not, uh, my mother was encouraged by that. And so she came to compassion and shared our story. And she was amazed. Mm. by how fast the people from Compassion came to our home. And they began telling us to prepare and to share our story and to share our birthday information, what we love to play with, and all of that. And, and they said they'll try to find a sponsor for us. Not long after that, the same man who took my picture, his name was David Serwaj. I'll never forget this man. Uh, because I enjoyed taking that picture. I remember taking like two or three. <laughs> uh, but um, David came back to us three months later with the most amazing news. David is standing at a distance with my mother talking. And my mother all of a sudden throws down the broom 
that she was using to sweep. And she just goes off with a wonderful shout. In, in Uganda, we would understand it. <laughs> she was just rotating as she did that. And I, um, I knew that's good news because everyone knows that sound. It's a beautiful yes. relation. And so I run and my mom, I ask mom, what's going on? And my mom tells me, Richmond, you've got a sponsor. And uh, I can't believe, begin to describe the words and the joy and the dancing uh, that filled our home at that news. We were so happy. We celebrated because we knew what that meant. We knew what happens when kids get sponsored, what, me, what that means to their education, to their health, mm. to their childhood. Those who've lost their childhood because they had to mature too fast. Uh, I mean, like, for example, child-headed homes um, that are led by kids who are eight, nine, ten years old. Finally, kids who've lost their childhood get their childhood back again. They're there on swings, on scissors and merry-go-rounds. And it is, this someone is protecting them and they feel like children again. And I, I knew that was now going to become my story. And so I go to this project and I'm received by a man called Peter Mugabe, who was the pastor of the church. And uh, I'll never forget the day I received my health number. To this day, I remember it, UG 129-064. Never forget that number Mm. because I was told, Richmond, whenever you fall sick, malaria, cholera, diarrhea, whatever disease it is, don't run to the church. Don't even run to the Compassion Project. Just run to any hospital next to you. All these hospitals have a list of kids who are sponsored. They will verify that you are sponsored. They will treat you. And here's the thing. Don't worry about the bill. Oh, oh, I mean, how life-changing for you. I mean, how life-changing for your family as well, right? Like that, that changes the trajectory of a family. Absolutely. And, and this is the beauty, Jenny. We, we have a, an amazing model uh, that we, we benefited from uh, because the model has that if the family is more than two kids, sponsor two kids. Because when those two kids receive food, that food will be enough for the family. Oh. When those kids receive yes. a mosquito net, they could all sleep under these mosquito nets. Oh. And that was exactly my story. Um, <laughs> Let let me just share this with you because it's what almost caused my mom to fall off the chair. Uh, My mom is there and my mom is told that the sponsor that's changing Richmond's life is 15 years old. Oh Oh my goodness. (laughs) A 15-year-old girl called Heather made a private personal decision that she'll leave simply so that I could simply live, that she would live with less, so I could live with more, that she would reach out and step into the fight and say, look, whatever it takes, I'm going to walk with you, Richmond. And she's not doing that, that she might gain anything from it. She's, she's just doing that because she, she, she just loves and the gospel compels that. I mean, anyone who knows Christ knows to take care of the poor. I mean, if, yeah, yeah. So, so she's changing my world, and 
My life is changing. I'm now back at school and I have my health number and I'm now playing on the swings. I'm skipping and I'm doing merry-go-rounds and I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to hear the gospel for the first time ever in my life. And then a few years later, it took me a while because the gospel was so new to me because I was used to different belief systems. But until I was 14 is when it finally lit up for me. And Pastor Peter was giving us a devotional word. He was sharing from the gospel as well as making reference to Genesis 39 about this young boy, Joseph who was going through all this pain, not of his own making, but there was a God who loved him and had a good plan for him. And my heart was so touched by this message. I said, I want to give my life to God. I want to repent. I want to give every time things I stole on the street, and fighting on the street and all these things just almost came back to my mind in one flash. And I said, look, I, I want to give my life to Christ. I want to try this. And so at 14, I made a decision to follow Christ as the first member in my family. And I did not know that just two years later, by this time, I'm 16 years old, and all five of my brothers and sisters have given their life to Christ at the Compassion Project. It would take another uh, three years, and by this time, I'm 19 years old, and my mother is inviting herself to church, and she's sitting at the back, and Pastor Peter sharing the gospel and my mother walks forward. My mother walks forward and trusts Christ with her life. One of the biggest evidences I saw of my mother's transformation is when she forgave my uncle. The transformation that came in our home was incredible. My mother was sad, always blaming her pain to the loss of my dad and all of that. And, and there my uncle comes in and culturally, if... Um, in the case of my mom, since she lost her husband, uh, my uncle, who is the oldest brother, need, takes care of her. Basically, she moves into his house and becomes his second wife. And then he also takes care of us as his kids now. And she had rejected that because she had no love for him. But also she, she just wanted to use what my father had worked for to, to take care of us. And uh, my uncle didn't have any of that. He couldn't bear that rejection. So he humiliated her and took everything my father had worked for and basically said, you woman, get out of here. Uh, what a shame you are. And so in the midst of the time when we desperately needed what my father had worked for, we had no access to it. And my mother was just filled with rage and anger and all kind of bitterness towards him and here she is, I'm 19 years old, and she's giving her life to Christ. Uh, three years later, my uncle is sick with cancer, and uh, he's in the hospital. Nobody's taking care of him, and guess what happens? My mother hears this, and she mobilizes us and says, let's go and take care of uncle. Let, let me just say, I'm probably not the only one crying right now. Um, and And of course, for me, it's so personal because that would have been my son's life. He didn't have any living relatives in Rwanda. And, and so what you're saying to me, I can just picture, you know, that, that you as an eight-year-old trying to figure it all out and carrying the burden of that. And yeah, I'm in awe of God and how he would use a 15-year-old girl. That got me. I, I just know that there is, 
there's a disconnect for us sometimes of how we can help and how we can be a part of, of stories like this. And that bridge of a 15-year-old just saying, sure, at, at some conference or hearing something like this and, and saying, yes, I will help. And, and who knows? They probably use their parents' money, but, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. It was the faith of her, that child that said, yes, I want to help. So pastor, this is a miracle that, that you would be training and equipping pastors and come from a place of unbelief in the slums of Uganda and then receive an education trained by Moody Bible Institute. This is all a miracle. Talk about your passion for pastors and the local church and where that developed, because that is the investment of your life. You're giving your whole life to this. Talk about why you care about it so much. In my life, I was very committed to make a contribution to my country. My country, by the time I was finishing high school, was the sixth most corrupt country in the world. And I made a pledge in my heart that I would make a contribution by training ethical accountants in order to make a contribution into healing the moral landscape and the excessive and uh, dangerous corruption that had entered our country. So I, I worked hard as an accountant and I continued very hard. I graduated summa cum laude. Uh, from the university. I was hired back by the university as a tutorial assistant, then associate professor. And I just kept going on, uh, instructing with all my heart, developing more and more accountants. But then something happened. My mother, who had experienced so much pain in her background after the loss of my dad, particularly pain caused by my uncle, I struggled to see how she would ever forgive him. But when my uncle fell sick of cancer, my mom mobilized us to go and take care of him in hospital. And two days before my uncle passed, I saw a sight that I'll never forget. My mother's hand in his hand, and she was leading him to the Lord. That's when it became clear to me that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And I realized that our community might be poor and my community might need bread and water. But we need Christ. And if water is going to be delivered, it must be delivered in Jesus' name. If bread is going to be given, bread must be given in Jesus' name because ultimately that's what we need. And, and I just began to realize that even the gospel truth was being under attack, that pastors were being fed and sold bills of goods called gospel. And the extreme prosperity gospel was going here and there. And I was like, no, no, no. I want to now shift and step into that space and teach pastors to return to truth, to return to the word of God, because the stakes are too high. It's the gospel that people need, the truth that people need. And so that's how I founded the Pastors Discipleship Network. After uh, paying attention to a theology at a master's level, I did my master's degree in spiritual formation and discipleship, went on to do a PhD in philosophy of leadership. And together, theology and leadership being brought into the hands and into the hearts and minds of most desperate pastors in Uganda who are untrained. I mean, it's, we're seeing all this transformation happen. And I'm so grateful that God would allow me see this and also be a part of it. Have you ever gotten to meet Heather? Oh, that will be the joy of my life. So <laughs> Compassion UK knew that Heather was living in uh, a certain part of the UK. And so when I was coming to the US, on this particular trip, I was going to uh, Moody. Uh, they organized uh, a surprise visit for Heather. 
Unfortunately, it was compassion that was surprised. Heather was flying out when they were flying me in. Oh, no. So that was so sad. But, yeah, we were working out in a way that um, that wow. I would get to see her. We, we Please record but- that and send that to me because I'm already <laughs> weeping just at the story of it. So, yeah, I, I just think oh, God is good at, at connecting people and making the world very small. I would love to ask you another question. We, you know, in the last two years, we have been blessed to, you know, get to hear stories from around the world. And what I've learned from that is that there are different ways that you do community there. And I know that because I've been there as well. But but I would love to just hear what it looks like to live life in a communal way, because I think that's one thing in America that has really broken down and I'm hoping is restored. But talk about for you, just even the basic things of eating together and what does it look like to just live shoulder to shoulder with people? The umbrella philosophy of how we do community in Uganda is called Ubuntu. And that's something uh, the listeners can research and read about. Ubuntu simply summarized means I am because you are. And you are because I am. Nobody could see themselves as an individual entirely. Uh, If I'm to progress in life, it's because you did something. If I'm to retract, it's because you did something. And and we just see ourselves as a community that way. Uh, Very practically, during these recent days of the coronavirus, it's been amazing to see community rise to the highest image possible that you could imagine. So in Uganda, we had the opportunity of doing what we call temporary, I don't know how to frame this, it's temporary adoption. Uh, So temporary adoption is the idea that uh, if a family knew that the child will not survive if they continued living with them because they didn't have food, they were willing to give this child to another family within the church that was able to take care of the child for two or three months. And we organized it in such a way that the children are protected and all of that. But uh, it was amazing to see over 300 children exchange homes. And after three, four months, these children go back to their Mm. homes safe and fed. And when I saw that, I mean, you just picture that. It's almost like an exodus that's orchestrated by love and community and the hand of God. These children moving from one home and to another. And that was just now one of the pictures that demonstrated high-level community. The other one was food. Most families in Uganda um, are generally poor, and they would do a lot of subsistence-type agriculture, or at least whatever they earn, it would be from their daily labor. So you work and eat. Whatever money you make in a day, you eat that. And so it was beautiful to see that even the poorest of the poor, when the church called on anyone who had something extra to to, to give, people brought uh, bananas, people brought matoke, people brought corn flour, people brought all kinds of things to the church so that now we're able to take that and give to the more desperate families. So one dynamic that I think I must explain is their families who even the poor call them poor. I don't know if that makes sense. Like within a slum community, um, everyone is generally poor, but there are those who are extremely poor, maybe for health reasons and they can't earn an income. There is no food for two or three days in a row and all of that. 
And so, and so we, we saw the poor give to the poor. And even though it was very uncertain because everyone had every reason to hoard, everyone had every reason to keep and maintain, but it was just so powerful to see, so powerful to see the poor bring food and say, look, share this with someone who is uh, less fortunate than I am. And if you see the person saying, I'm fortunate, uh, you'd chuckle and say, look, how is this even happening? But people were able to share the little they had. And I think majority of Uganda has survived because of community. People loving on each other, sharing the little they have. But more than that, being willing to take in children, uh, even though they knew they had not enough to take care of their own. Mm. So that would be just about a few examples of community in Uganda. You're talking to a lot of people right now that are in the Western church. What can we do, Pastor? Because we want to help. There's, there's two things that have been on my mind. The first one is this, that when a person makes a decision to live simply so that someone else can simply live, there is nothing more beautiful than that. Because such a person is not coerced, is not forced, is not manipulated or whatever. They just, of their own, are changing someone else's life. And that single action is so powerful. And yet, you know what? Almost everyone can do it. And for me, that action changed my life. The second thing is we're living in very difficult days right now. Uganda is under the third wave of the corona pandemic. And while Uganda has lost over 120,000 jobs, where over 40 I think the number is 44,000 companies and small businesses have shut down. Uganda's economy, uh, according to experts, is going to take 15 years to recover to what it was before the pandemic. While many people have lost their lives and, and, and we are sad about that, and while many businesses have shut and adults are affected, but do you know who is most impacted? It's the children. Yeah. It's those who cannot fight for themselves, who cannot voice themselves, those who are invisible. And there's never been a time more critical in history, in the history of the world, for children to be connected to such a, um, a rescue, a support system like compassion. Because when a child is in compassion, they will not starve. When a child is in compassion, compassion will bend backwards, do whatever it takes to make sure that child is taken care of. And so there has never been a time than, that's more critical than now for people to make decisions in such a way that kids get in, in hundreds, gets connect, get connected to a support system like this. I mean, I, I lived in a very difficult time, but I've, I've not seen so much pain on, at such a scale than I've seen today. And so my appeal to the world and my appeal to the audience is, guys, just, just think about it and, and pray about it. But more importantly, act, act. Because for me, one life, one act changed my life. So we trust Compassion. I have been on the ground with them. My husband and I sponsor a little girl named Chanceline. And it has been a gift to partner with Compassion multiple times. And I have seen that work be redemptive to the whole community. It isn't just changing that family. Compassion gets on the ground and they serve the entire community. And so 
What I want you to do is I want you to pull out your phone and open up a text and send the name Jenny, J-E-N-N-I-E, to 83393. And you are going to get a text back with a picture of a child and a link. This is amazing. And I mean, you podcast community have already stepped up in this world because 250 kids have been sponsored because of one episode last year. And this is why we did it again. You all showed up and you sponsored kids. And it has changed the life, just like Heather changed Pastor Wendera's life. You all have changed 250 lives. And I believe this episode was so good. I believe it will be double that. I imagine that 500 of you, 100,000 of you listen per episode just about. So I just am imagining 500 of you saying yes, and I will sponsor a kid. You can also go to compassion.com slash made for this, and you can choose exactly which boy or girl that you want to sponsor. And Compassion is going to send a a gift to you when you do this. We're going to send you a copy of Get Out of Your Head just to say thank you. If you already have it, you can give it to a friend or give it to a neighbor. And I know that this story that, that you're a part of, I mean, you can't know how it will change the trajectory, not just of a life, but of a family and of generations. So I'm so grateful, Pastor Wendera. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. We believe in the local church and we believe in ministries that support the local church. And so all of you listening right now, just know that this work is real. 80% of what we give to Compassion goes directly to Chancelling, to our, to our sponsored child. And I'm so grateful for that. Their work is incredible. And I just want all of us to get behind it in every way we can.